<laughs> We're gonna remove this. <laughs> Maybe we can just like mute out names and talk talk about people online. <laughs> people can try and guess who we're talking about. Can we can we get all of the stuff that we're gonna uh, remove out of the way first? Sure. Yeah, sure. I thought about uh, uh, using this episode to. Welcome to episode five of Wayward. Tonight we're just going to have a chat, kind of reflect on the last five episodes we've done since we started the project, catch up, and have a little banter session. No guests tonight, no special topics. My name is Zeb. I'm Kent. And I'm Mark. All right, guys, so how have you been? Good. It's been all right. Good. It's been a busy week already. I think it's only Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah, we can oh, almost here. Hump day. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not into that. I'm a good boy. <laughs> what are you up to, Mark? So uh, I'm in you know, the process of moving jobs. And uh, yeah, I got like the official offer letter last Thursday, which is like the big piece of paper you know, that I sign and like guarantees me a job and I can finally switch. Um, I've been kind of trying to get out of my current situation for a few years. And uh, they had the start date wrong. And it was like next week. And this is, you know, a few states over and all that, so this isn't exactly feasible. And we had talked about a later start date. And so I sent it back to them. Um, and so they're supposed to be sending me a new copy of the letter by email. Um, that's what they told me Friday around lunch. And I'm trying not to sweat it because the previous author has been withdrawn. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, like, I really want to get out of here. And they say they're sending me a new one. I'd just like to have that so I can, like, I don't want to officially, you know, like, start looking for someone to sublet my place or, you know, tell my current work that I'm leaving or all of that. But there's a lot to do before I would, uh, before I would move. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So it's, it's been a, uh, it's been a wild few days. So I know you don't want to get into too many revealing personal details, but is, are you taking another library job? Is that what your new yeah, job and, is? Um, yeah. It's, it's another, it's another library job. It's in Baltimore. Um, cool. Definitely looking forward to being in that area. Yeah, you're moving into like the heartland of uh, weird Catholic Twitter. It seems yeah, like. I had no idea. Remember the first time I made a joke about Maryland, and everyone got so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> you're like just first... a, like a one-hour commute away from catching a beer with Matthew Walter, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have you been up to, Kent? Um, I've been. Since like the middle of last week, I've been going periodically into Baltimore to try and secure a few accounts. I'm selling wine to a couple of fairly up-and-coming restaurants now, which is neat. Uh, so, Mark, when you're in Baltimore, I can say, oh, let's go to the up-and-coming restaurant where uh, I'm well-known and recognized yeah. and receive a history discount. And you'll say, wow, <laughs> yes, this guy. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, you could be that guy who just, like, they walk in, like, oh, you know, the, the new hostess doesn't understand and – the mayor D rushes over, you know, very embarrassed. Like, shh, shh, it's okay. We have your regular table, sir. I've actually never eaten there in either of these places. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Cool. What's going on with you, Zeb? 
Well, I'm starting to get busy with our business. It's been a busier spring than I thought it would be. But today I started a new employee who is a cool guy who found me through weird Catholic Twitter, actually, and <laughs> got, was interested in the job back in November. And after a few interviews and meeting him, we decided to bring him up here starting today. And he had been teaching at a prep school in Atlanta and moved up here now to work in my produce business. So that's exciting, but of course it takes me away from my actual duties uh, because I've got to train him and introduce him to everything. But it's cool to be able to use the business as a way to sort of help create community, the kind of community I would like to see. Um, I'm excited to work with somebody who has similar viewpoints and interests. Uh, so what does Brov look like? <laughs> Nobody knows what Brov looks like or if Brov is real. Well, someday we'll at least get to hear what he sounds like because we're going to get him on here. <laughs> I think especially because I assume, you know, I know you're listening, Brov. And <laughs> this is a platform where you can just, you know, trash talk anyone on Twitter and they don't get a chance to respond. You can call anyone anything you want. We will officially endorse you can say, all Brav opinions. I'm racist. You can say <laughs> Mark's racist, and we'll all get confused. Both of those are true. <laughs> yeah, especially he's got to be going through Twitter withdrawal right now. Oh, he God, must, must need a way to get his opinions out. Uh, that feel when that feel when no that never mind. <laughs> Oof. We can cut that. <laughs> Yeah, so there have been some uh, beefs happening. Not looking at it. I don't care. I don't care. I wasn't reading it. It doesn't matter. That's true. It doesn't matter. Let's start no, it saying not. that. <laughs> I, that, that. That's the best part about Twitter is literally in a week, everyone will be over all of these things. Yeah, and the strategy of just disengaging for a few days or a week is probably the best strategy if probably, yeah. you felt like you needed to get involved in the first place. I mean, if I if I remember, and I don't, I don't think I even looked at them that carefully because i didn't realize it was a serious beef until like really <laughs> far in i thought it was more or less just like an irony thing where everyone was pretending to be mad i didn't realize people were actually mad <laughs> the thing is that the tone of voice barely changes because the, uh -huh. because of like the baseline uh kind of parlance of that corner of twitter is already like it's it it's hard to like detect shifts in tone mm-hmm all right, shall we move on? Please. I thought of one more topic. I'm going to add this to the Google Docs. All right. I think came up in the last episode, and I do want to actually delve in. I mean, I would actually love to do a conspiracy theory episode in general. Mm -hmm. um, like the mm -hmm. flat Earth thing is fun to me and funny to me, and I would love to get someone who is more involved or interested in these things um i want to get someone who knows about flat earth and jonathan pajot on the same episode talk about flat earth. <laughs> i bet we could get uh brian from street fight to talk to us about his flat earth friends yeah that'd be interesting did you see the thing sam chris tweeted today that he'd found some people who don't believe the moon exists <gasps> no <laughs> 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 So it was just like a three-sentence paragraph that he posted. And to be specific, they don't believe that the moon is what astronomy teaches us that it is, that it's this huge rock at a certain distance from the Earth. 
But they, of course, believe that there's something in the sky, some light that you see. <laughs> I, I found it. Should I read this? Yeah, if you've got All it. All right. <clears throat> Lunarists have engaged to so much forgery and misrepresentation up until now. I have every reason not to trust the authority of so-called experts. Further, it must be clear that the word in question refers specifically to a... Oh, God, that's a lot of zeros. Uh, 74 and then, like, 20 zeros, however big the moon is, ton object, 2,160 miles in diameter, that orbits the Earth at an average distance of 240,000 miles. I have yet to see any such object described in world history, myth, or folklore, despite the number of so-called experts who repeatedly point to weird stories and god depictions as having some tenuous connection to the alleged moon that scientists <laughs> promote today. So now I know... So this rules. So know that I will not simply accept a reference to a word in a language I cannot understand with a commentary alongside that goes, see, it's the moon, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> this rules i have no idea what any of that means i love it so much oh lunarist is my new favorite word oh my god this is so good oh no because i i know i've seen uh sam chris really get some people riled up about flat earth stuff as well because mm-hmm. he had did you <laughs> did you see uh the conversation joey had about this the other day uh maybe someone he was talking about flat earth and like someone just dropped in to call him an idiot <laughs> like aim searching flat earth or something it was awesome i saw that well i was talking so apparently it's like not that hard to piss people off with oh. um flat earth stuff because there's like uh anti-flat earth like uh, uh rationalism patrol squads oh yeah <laughs> and i think this is what you know what we're talking about with chris is that it's such a powerful oddly enough a powerful challenge to the kind of front row mindset where like the the data is like is what gives you value and like people like the flat earthers are not respecting the data and there's certainly a section of our society where that that is quite literally blasphemy yeah flat earth is the new punk rock for sure oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) did i know i sent it to you mark did did either of you read jonathan's piece from like 2013 about uh the flat earth no so yeah, he wrote a piece in like twenty several years ago, uh, which was I had read some of his earliest stuff on on OAJ, but that was the first thing that really caught me attention. It was it caught my attention rather. It was titled <laughs> something like um, "Most of the Time the Earth is Flat." Uh, that's a and, great title. <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically like a, I, I I don't remember the thesis with perfect clarity at the moment, but it's basically just defense of like the the cosmological sort of common sense conception of our relationship to heavenly bodies mm-hmm. and and how like how deeply that is that that sort of narrative of days and nights and stuff like that is woven into our perception of reality and how like understanding the bible sort of relies on <laughs> you know making uh, just kind of, of of leaning into that common sense perception of how like days and nights work and all that cycles but it made a lot of people really mad so it's it's easy even to make people mad on like uh, making explicitly religious arguments for like <laughs> cosmologies of common sense uh-huh. uh, and in explicitly religious uh, publications. Well, at least yeah, in the uh, the comments to a Sam Chris article he wrote a while back, um, where he mentioned uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson getting really mad at um, 
some I forget who it was, but someone said that the Earth was flat, and like Neil deGrasse Tyson did his app, you know, his like classic like made a YouTube video where actually you should know that the planet is a sphere, blah 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 blah, and just like how stupid and pathetic this is. Um, and so Chris was making fun of Tyson for doing this, and like a lot of you know angry comments about how you know people are trying to bring flat earth back because they hate science and this is going to lead to us banning evolution in classrooms and like <laughs> you know i think i saw like one person even managed to find a way to connect it to like birth control um <laughs> like it, it really is just it's a trigger for them like for yeah, the the yeah. front row kids like the flatter thing will just send them just i mean they they cannot stay calm when they hear when they hear it because for whatever reason they think it's an actual relevant thing but yeah i think more than anything it's that it's just it's openly disrespectful to their values how much of it do you think is people actually thinking the earth is flat and how much is just people having fun with the idea actually believing the earth is flat i would say five percent tops (laughs) like five percent actually think the earth is flat a solid 20 to 25 who started out doing it as an irony thing, but have like now become invested and had their brains broken and believe mm-hmm. what they do. And yeah, and the, the rest are just posting. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh modern day Satanism is, uh, has nothing to do with actually believing in the right. devil. But it's interesting, like how much can there is sort of, um, like how much permeability there is between the ideas and conspiracy theories. They're like it's almost, and I'm sure there is like infighting between people who believe this or that conspiracy theory. But for the most part, it seems to me like it's kind of this like seamless garment of <laughs> like yeah. conspiracies that all kind of like it, it's a grand unified theory of of everything. Oh yeah. Well, did you guys ever read um, Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto no. Eco? No, I like Echo a lot, but I haven't read it. Oh, so it's it's probably my favorite. It's it's definitely my favorite fiction book. It's all about conspiracy theories. So like he digs up all of the weird 19th century occultists and stuff. But the 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 basic idea, uh, the basic plot of it is uh that all essentially conspiracy theories prove all conspiracy theories are true. Um, so they're these guys they basically work for like a vanity press that publishes really stupid, trashy, pop academic stuff, mostly about the Templars. Um, and they decide to write the uh, the ultimate sort of whacked-out conspiracy theory uh, academic book um, using a computer program where they basically put in all of the various theories, and it doesn't matter because they all prove each other are true. So it'll just spit them out into a random order, essentially, and create the uh, sort of the grand unified narrative of the uh you know the hermetic truths or whatever that rules it's an extremely good book i think if you know a little bit of like medieval history and philosophy if you know who like you know occam was and all like name of the rose will pretty much make sense to you um foucault's pendulum was basically designed for you for it to be a weird rabbit hole you go down into where like (laughs) you waste all your time reading like articles about well so western occultism was kind of my gateway drug to christianity Uh, oh (laughs) so like this is all stuff that i like i felt like was was my like underappreciated skill set was like knowing things about 19th century occultists um and it's only been recently that i've I've learned that that's actually kind of a useful skill so i'm excited uh (laughs) to to apply my trade you should definitely read this book then 
<laughs> so do we want to do a sort of a recap of our first five episodes and reflect on that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so this we've done five episodes so far. Our first one was the introduction to what the podcast is going to be about and how we think of weirdness. Then we had Jonathan Pajot talking about monsters and weird things in Christian art. Then Liz Brunigan, Bill Kavanaugh talking about what religion and government. Um, a little bit of stuff on the Benedict Option. Then we talked about the Sam Chris article on Alan de Baton and banality. And finally, we had Chris Arnotti talking about religion and addiction in America. And I thought it was really an interesting and surprising thing, although the common, I guess, uniting factor was the three of us, but how much those episodes all connected to each other and the yeah, it's kind of wild kept huh? coming up in between them. Yeah. I mean, it just proves uh, Jonathan's theories about the Logos <laughs> right, I think. It was so great that that was the first one, too. The other ones, you know, got into more stuff about politics and sociology and were a little more, I don't know, sort of straight ahead. Mm-hmm. But so starting with that one, which was much more mystical and sort of abstract, and then having it play out <laughs> in the actual <laughs> conversations we have, like having it bear fruit or, or demonstrate its utility in yeah, it was kind of a cool real life. Right, kind of, yeah. Yeah, for like, yeah. I'm, I'm happy it worked out that way. Definitely. I think we'll have some more of that too. I, I, um, I'd like to get our, our Liberian Civil War episode in soon. Um, yeah. The guest yeah. I had planned for that house collapsed recently because um, <laughs> a neighbor had some construction going on and the, they, they dug a ditch too close to his house, so his uh, one of his walls ended up sliding into a ditch. So um, he has a lot on his plate right now, but hopefully soon. (laughs) I think that one will tie in. That one will tie in nicely with some of the stuff we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that it it was a good foot to start out on. I'd like to have him back on. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like six months down the line or something like that, if he's willing to do it. Cause it was interesting. We didn't talk much about like a lot of his theory of like, um, periphery is like is is directly tied to like individual human persons Mm -hmm. that like because we've talked about we've talked a little bit about um the passions and stuff and his idea is also that like the 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 garment like he talks about the garment of skin that occurs in in genesis and stuff like that and like that there's also a periphery to the human person which are the passions which have to be integrated and all of that um so it'd be neat to get a little more into some praxis i guess and i don't know we could have fun with it yeah yeah, I mean, I think if we can start to figure out more of a schedule, um, like we found, I think last week was a lot of prep for us, yeah. and trying to crank that out every week would be a high demand. So maybe if we can, <laughs> you know, at least until we are uh, getting in enough uh, funding to be able to quit all of our day jobs, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, if, if we can do kind of basically, like, you know, alternate like light and heavy episodes. Sure. And maybe, you know, a little more scripted than what we're doing tonight, but basically just, you know, reflections and chat and gossip and all that. And then, you know, every two weeks we can try and have something a little more in-depth. You know, I would still really like to do a uh, psychoanalysis and religion episode. I think that would be good. I think that would would definitely require some extra reading and brushing up for us to be ready. You know, my my first idea for a guest has not panned out yet. so I'm shopping around for other ideas. Jordan Peterson's trending right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would be a cool one. I would also like to do a uh, Kierkegaard episode. Just thinking about uh, 
his um his image of like the religious man so if i remember it it's been a little while but it he talks about in fear and trembling how you wouldn't necessarily be able to identify the religious person as opposed to the aesthetic or ethical person how a religious person would basically be doing all the same things day to day like he would get up and you know go about town and dress himself in a certain way it wouldn't you know necessarily scream this is a man set apart so it's almost kind of like a little bit like the benedict option thing like so what like how does this religious man who has just a fundamentally different set of values still function essentially seamlessly as part of a aesthetic society Hmm. it's interesting have have you guys read the the letter to diognetus no so it's an early christian document um i i don't want to um give a century in case i'm wrong because i don't have it off the top of my head but it it opens up with this kind of long um, description of of what the christian is like that they like are indistinguishable from um anyone else of their nationality like they they participate in all these customs except they don't do this where they do do this right so like mm. the the christian in persia uh, doesn't marry his family members and you know um stuff like that and it's it's a pretty neat document i don't know i don't know if it's relevant but it, it, it could make it for interesting well i mean i think that would actually be um i think that would be a good topic because the benedict option thing is pretty much I don't know of anyone who is still undecided where they stand on <laughs> that whole situation. Yeah. But so maybe if we could redo it as a taking it for granted that none of us are going to go live out in the woods or the hills. How does mm-hmm. one be a fully authentic Christian in a because I I, I, I I just I'm not at the point where I can say America isn't a Christian nation. I'm just I'm not there yet. But in, in essentially a secular society how does someone be a fully authentic christian i think yeah we could definitely pull from multiple readings to do kind of a an overview of two thousand years of advice there (laughs) what what's worked and what hasn't yeah that would be interesting i mean i'm not with you on the premise that number one none of us is going to go live in the woods or hills i think i am going to do that i i mean that (laughs) again like that's what i i'm you know a simple enough minded person that I only understand things in black and white. Uh-huh. So like the most attractive version of the Benedict, op- Benedict option to me is to actually form the separatist communities. Cause otherwise like, what are we doing? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there when you're ready to move. Let me know. Well, but the separatist communities already exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you I don't can go join a monastery if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, a, it's I, a fair point, but you make a, it's a, it's a neat, proposal to kind of do a, a maybe more in-depth study in which we kind of um, tease out ideas and, and maybe even work on a, a proposal of a theory of some kind because um, my feeling about the last episode whose episodes that we've done is that is that i'm a little disappointed in my own ability to recall information and to like uh, be an interesting interlocutor so I would really <laughs> like Oh yeah, it, it, if, it's been an embarrassing experience for me too. <laughs> I'd like if I could I mean my my goal is to get better at it and mm-hmm. I'd like to to be able to use this platform to to you know do interesting things and like work with interesting ideas have and be interesting people having interesting conversations together not just uh I don't know. See, I'm I've ruined it already. Well, all right, so let me uh interrupt and take the idea and run a little farther with what we were just talking about before with that particular idea to refine it a little bit 
so not just uh you know how to be a christian in essentially secular milieu but uh how to be a lone christian i i i pulled up your letter and it's saying between 130 and late 100s that i mean that's one of the things i think that interested me with the kierkegaard thing and this is you know quite possibly also more of just a personal concern for me um as someone you know most most of my friends are not religious or not particularly um religious by uh we'll say catholic twitter standards like so how do you live the uh, religious life and i mean kierkegaard's way of framing it is incredibly individualistic which i think makes it unusual and interesting for a sort of christian how-to because so much of the sort of benedict option conversations are about communities and networks and that sort of thing whereas kierkegaard sets it up very much as the uh the lone man whose you know relationship with god can never really be translated into uh or understood by the people around him hmm. and i mean maybe that maybe that doesn't work um i mean well, that I mean, certainly be the conclusion we hit i think it's interesting i, mean, I think that all, the, the way in which christians thinking about these issues um tend to critique individualism very seriously i I think that that's fair and valid and important and i'm behind that but also like you know individualism in in some sense is a product of christianity mm-hmm. i mean it, 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 the, yeah. the the version we've received i mean it's it's you know a product of paul and augustine and plenty of monastic writers over the centuries have uh worked very hard to produce the kind of not not the kind of individualism exactly that we have because it's also a product of a number of other things many of which are not particularly germane to um full-fledged or authentic christianity but there is i think christianity has always taken introspection very seriously Mm -hmm. um it's it's a dialectic it's a dialectic mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things that i've found really consternating with the benedict option criticisms is that and this kind of came up interest in an interesting way with the mike pence thing about not eating with any women not eating out at restaurants with women other than his wife or without his wife present is the tendency of liberals in particular and i think we're all prone to it, of taking a sort of Kantian approach to any kind of moral question where if you come up with an answer, that's the answer for everybody. You're putting that forward as the answer for everybody all the time. (laughs) And so like the Benedict option, the question is, is this how a Christian should live or not? Which is a crazy question. Like there's not a way (laughs) that a Christian should live, you know. The Benedict Option, and I'm only three chapters through, through the book and becoming less and less enthusiastic about Roger Ooh. as I go through it. But I think the basic idea is starting with the premise that we're at a kind of a unique situation in American life where it is especially hard more than ever before to raise a faithful Christian family as a faithful Christian. And that's not everybody's problem. That's not every Christian's problem because not every Christian is trying to raise a family or is Mm -hmm. in a place necessarily where it's hard, but it's getting harder in surprising and unique ways. And so this is a a response to that and an attempted strategy to deal with that. 
And taken as that, I, I haven't seen anybody who's put forward a legitimate criticism of the idea itself. I mean, there's a lot you can say about Dreher's failings as a writer or um, his ability or willingness to address the, all of the relevant issues. But that's just not the conversation I've seen anywhere at all. It's it interesting like to me that most looking at this as an individualistic question. Yeah. Is this the way I should be the mm. best Christian I can be and saying, well, no, I need to be more involved in um, politics and in the world. But that's yeah, the question all, that Should all Christians address. become hermits? Well, yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's interesting to me that when you talk about it, and, and I think you've had, uh, over the course that I've known you, you've, you've said a lot of really, uh, you've developed a lot of really interesting insights about this whole conversation but you return often to um the subject of raising children which is something that like i mean i'm not the, i think you're probably further in bennett adoption than i am but that like i don't see that coming up a whole lot in like that that even that that subject coming up a whole lot in a lot of the conversations people are having about it and it seems to me that that's like i think that that's a really <laughs> that's one of the things that's really critical and it's not just like uh a matter of, of preserving um, I don't know, social or cultural conservatism mm -hmm. in a particular Dreyer fashion. Like I, I'm, I think it's amazing to me to see the role of YouTube in the lives of the young children that I know, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like there, there are, there are market forces conspiring against young children. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like not, not, not yeah. just, it's not, but it's the. I think the scale is. I mean, I I really am not someone mm. who's who's resistant to the idea of saying that things do change and things do you know, like problems do uh, intensify or, or like I I think yeah. that it's really it's it's unprecedented how <laughs> brands are able to market the children and and the the kind of the the overreach of kind of. I think it's it's fairly family. new. I mean. Children's literature, literature is only a little more than 100 years old yeah. at all, and it's been escalating. Just the permeation of, of the market into the home and into the life of the child has been escalating from the beginning, from the first kid's book until now. And now it's to the point where parents, unless they're trying hard or just putting down really blanket rules, are not able to filter or even know what their children are consuming pop culture-wise. Yeah. Mm. They're not watching a television in the family room, they're watching something on a small screen in their own room. So, I mean, I think that it's a different situation than it's ever been. Yeah. It's not completely novel, but it's different. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the general interesting things about the, at least the conversations around the Benedict option is that it's an open and vague enough thing that pretty much everyone has to show their hand. Yeah. Um, in responding to it. So like Zeb, like you point out, you know, mostly talk about the matters of how to raise a family, which is probably more on your mind on a regular basis than mine or probably Kent's. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, I get mad about the, you know, blindnesses of the, the general premises of what the uh, the struggles for Christians and even people in general um, living in our society. You know, I talked about how his you know, obsession, which I don't think is necessarily wrong about the importance of community and stability, which because shockingly things that are on my mind a lot in general are about the economic injustices of our country. So mm -hmm. intentionally or not, I think 
you know, Dreher managed to create a uh, a conversation where it is always very personally revealing what people seize on or how they react to the general very vague subject. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> but I mean, I guess maybe what I was getting at a little bit, and I didn't say this, but I, I think that, I mean, I'm not a fan of Dreher's brand. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I think that I, I've had similar sympathies to the sort of thrust of the argument that Zeb has because I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't have children yet, but I'd like to in the near future. Mm-hmm. And I was raised in a, a pretty secular household. And so I reflect on my childhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm horrified at the prospect <laughs> of, of passing that on to someone. Uh-huh. Um, and so I am trying to think pretty cl- critically about um, what that entails. And, mm-hmm. and, and the challenges have only intensified since I was a small child. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right, and I think that that's a pretty—it's an interesting observation, uh, given, yeah, my own kind of sympathies for the thrust of the argument. Right. It's funny, Mark. Now that you say that, and I and I reflect on my own re- reaction to the Benedict, Benedict option, and every critique I've read, I think every one of them could be restated as why this book does or does not justify my pre-existing life choices. <laughs> Because I was looking to do a better adoption sure, anyway, yeah. I'm just using this occasion as a way to like collect more people into it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I'm extremely. I mean, I think a lot about. I can't remember if we cut the this detail out of the episode, um, of episode three, but like I think a lot about things about community just because both me and my parents, like, we are a small family, and individually, we are all extremely nomadic. Um, so like, I never really grew up with that sense of, we have, you know, obviously like family friends in the places we've lived and my parents have been in the same place for close to 20 years now, which is unheard of in my family. But, you know, I think about things like that a lot. And at this point, I'm probably just going to more or less stay mobile. So a lot of what Chris was saying last week really resonated with me that like, you know, I live in a, I live in a. I wouldn't call it a back row town because um, there is a college here, but I know a lot of back row people who just their families are from this area. And the the idea of actually leaving here is just would never come up to them because like this place is a part of them in a way that no place is a part of me. And, you know, at this point, I, I kind of feel like I might as well just kind of keep doing what my parents do and move several more times because it is cool i get to see like a bunch of new places and try out living big cities small towns that sort of thing um but i do think a lot about how it makes you know connections of any kind much more difficult and i'm not sure i'm convinced by the kierkegaard kind of one man and god version of christianity um obviously kierkegaard is much more complicated than than just that but like the importance of community and this being a thing that we are all not just in together, but the presence of other Christians is a fundamental part of, I think, what it is to be Christian. So maybe I am just I just keep shooting myself in the foot on this. I uh, am I allowed to say that that's probably the case? Yeah. <laughs> I, so I, I, I have I to guess... decide if I'm mad at you, but you can say. It. <laughs> well, I guess what am I? Um... I don't want to say frustrations because that uh, 
implies that I'm uh, madder than I am, and I've never been mad. Um, <laughs> but of of that kind of, or I guess of the, the argument that you've made that like it doesn't address your life circumstances. I mean, I think that there's there's persons for whom that's true. Right. But I've also had like that's your your life sounds pretty close to my life, and all of the things that I thought were kind of essential to my identity or were like calcified around my person or whatever, ended up being decisions for me right. and not not necessarily easy decisions i'm not trying to say that they were but if i'm compelled by an argument for stability and i am compelled by an argument for stability i can make the decision to be stable i mean i like tra- i like moving around too there's things that are, that are cool about it but um if i if i found the argument in favor of christian stability convincing and i have then i've I mean, all of those things have changed for me that that whole kind of right uh, the, the the way i describe um, a kind of nomadic lifestyle as part of my identity has totally changed over the course of like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a thing I, I just don't think, I think we end up making these things out to be more, um, just more deeply entrenched in who we, in who we are. People are very plastic people. You know, we, we can, we can, change pretty fundamental things about ourselves mm. i think um especially no, I think there's a compelling reason to do so not that it's easy i get i'm not saying that it's easy but it's it's possible mm-hmm. no but I, mean, I think you know i'm i'm certainly in a better place to make those decisions like because what chris said about how with the sort of data-driven version of well look the gdp is up like jobs are available in the country if you move to another state like the jobs are there waiting for you um that's yes it's more of an option for me and i can reflect on some of my decisions over the past 10 years or so and decide which were the good ones which were the bad ones um i'd rather not in a place where this might go public but i can do that um but there certainly are many people for whom it is not an option. If you want sure. to have any sort of security in your life, you are going to have to move. Um, sure. You know, both with pretty much all uh, professors and many academic libraries have some sort of tenure system where it's basically built in the assumption that you will either as an adjunct or a resident or whatever else you call it, you will bounce between several places for the first big chunk of your career and maybe we should say that professor and librarian are maybe not great career choices for christians um but i think that is a not insubstantial conversation on its own yeah i agree and i don't mean to diminish the 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 crux of what you're getting right but no i think i think it's fair that i i am also using what i think are actual very legitimate economic hardships and evils in our society as a defense against me having to actually own up to some of my choices i don't think that's a fair that's a fair well done it (laughs) Uh, there's one of the critiques of the benedict benedict option that kind of is the flip side of this that i've seen is that it's only available to people of means because Mm -hmm. a lot of people might be stuck in a situation economically stuck where they're the only serious christian they know Mm -hmm. and they can't move they can't go find other people to be around or maybe they're stuck there because of family ties and they have to help their family or take care of well their own wife and children or their mom and dad or brother and sister or whatever it may be and my i've had the same kind of experience that you did kent that i 
and that you're describing, Mark, I felt like that sort of lone person where God was my the only constant in my life. It was just me and God and, and the rest of the world. And I was kind of floating, um, detached from everything else all through my 20s. And I thought that's who and what I was. And that's what life was until I found my wife, my future wife, and got married and really quickly got into a job that is a business that I own and have a deep investment in work-wise. And so everything just totally changed and then found a community of other Catholics here. And so now my life experience is very different. Yeah, my concerns are different. I'm no longer only worrying about seeking God. I'm worrying about a whole bunch of other people also finding God, those being my children, first of all, and the rest of the people in my community as well. The thing is, I think that there's always been itinerant people in the church and in every society, of course. Yeah. There's never been a time when there, when everybody was living a life of stability. But I think it is important for those itinerant people to be integrated into a real role and a function, not just be detached and sort of lost in the world with just them and their personal relationship with Jesus or whatever, which is how I felt all through my 20s. And so I think the Benedict option is more for people in my state of life than mm -hmm. it is maybe for people in Mark's state of life, unless, Mark, you would choose to seek out something with more stability and make the choices and sacrifices that that would require. But more broadly, I think that even for somebody who's going to have that greater freedom and a life of moving around, I think there needs to be a way for that person to be integrated and for that way of life to be a living out of a role in the church. Like, Again, I, I'm really against this idea that there's one way to be a good Christian and that anybody could write a book describing it. I think there are many organs in the body of Christ and each one has its own function and role. But the important thing is to be integrated into the system in some way. Mm -hmm. right. And I don't know, maybe there needs to be another book, another option book that <laughs> oh, describes no. how the itinerant relates to the settled community in a way that is not contrary, but complementary. Mm -hmm. Who was the, uh, we talk about green martyrdom in, in the Celtic church, the early Celtic church as the alternative to black martyrdom, which is monasticism and white martyrdom, which is marriage and red martyrdom, which is uh, martyrdom of blood that like green martyrdom is exile or um, mm. an itinerant lifestyle. I wonder who the, uh, who the kind of um, flagship saint of that lifestyle is. <laughs> I remember reading a bunch of those stories. There was the, uh, there's like a, there was like a whole genre of, like Irish saints' lives, um, the Imrav, I think they were called. Um, but basically, it was all about who people basically, as a sacrifice to God or embrace a faith or whatever, would just get in a boat and push out to sea. Like, oh, yeah. This is going to work <laughs> out great. Um, now, all the stories about how it does work out great. Um, <laughs> take that for what you will. Um, yeah, yeah, history is written by the survivors, right? Right. Well, it usually wasn't them riding them either, strangely enough. Mm. Um, but anyway, there was like they're actually incredibly interesting. And they're they're based on an older, uh, I think, pre-Christian um, set of Irish stories was about Brendan similar. One of these? Yes, Brendan was one of the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we uh, in our church, one of our our uh, wall, or one of our the interior, because we have all these kind of pro uh, programs of interior iconography. One of them is Saints of North America, and in the far left corner is a little mm. Brendan on a ship. Hell because 
Hell yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, this that... is one of my favorite conspiracy theories. Yeah. <laughs> that Brendan settled the New World. Yeah. The Irish were here first. Yeah, the blue white, yeah, blue white Native Americans. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's an extremely interesting, just general idea. You know, any, any of those ideas that involve a full commitment. Because mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that I'm not the only sort of modern day Christian who feels more or less an ongoing lurking guilt about how, you know, the stories, all the, the great saints we read about, the disciples, and these sorts of things, just how full the commitment was. And like, it's pretty clear in the Gospels um, what kind of level of commitment Jesus is, is asking for. And, you know, I, I certainly at least feel a lot of yeah, but situations when uh, I, I start to wonder, so maybe I'm asked to like take that level of commitment i doubt i'm the only modern christian that has that sense of guilt feel free to chime in at any point uh, just no, me I'm okay just me um, cool. <laughs> no, anyway but no, i mean i think i i do like you know like the uh the mrev stories that kind of thing where it is about just like a full embrace um yeah both a sort of an inspiring thing and the comfort that it works out sure which is a promise, right? I mean, that's right. A, we have to take it on faith, but it's a promise that we have. What's interesting, I guess, is you talk about, um, y- yeah, I guess the, w- something that occurs to me is the level of deliberateness involved. That I think most itinerant people uh, amongst our peers are sort of doing it half consciously. Right. Um, and if it's offered, I mean, if it really is offered up as a sacrifice, but I think that there are things that are in, entailed, that, that there are sort of things that are that have to be tacked on to a kind of um, nomadic way of life that's offered as a sacrifice to God that that aren't usually involved, especially in the kind of half-conscious way that a lot oh, of... Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, the fact that I've followed work to a couple different states, even at 31, like, that, that, is, that was in no way, just to be honest, I, I'm not claiming that that was at all a sacrifice. Like, that... Well, well I mean, yeah. It's, not, it's also not, totally not to understandable. God. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you guys know about this character um, around Western Pennsylvania called Pilgrim George? No. no. Uh, he's a guy. I don't know a lot about him, and I'm gonna. This article has more about him than I've ever actually read. I didn't know he was like a known figure, but I've met him around some Byzantine Catholic stuff, like the um, the pilgrimage at Mount Saint Macrina. It's a big Byzantine event every Labor Day. He's an old guy who wears a monk's robe made out of like patchwork denim that he's clearly made for himself. And he wears an icon, a big icon around his neck. And so he basically walks around and prays like a monk. But as far as I'm aware, he's not a part of any community. But he's embraced by people wherever he goes as kind of a eccentric guy who's chosen to <laughs> wander the earth in prayer his whole life. He wears nothing on his feet during the summer, um, outdoors, like wherever he's traveling, wherever he's going, just barefoot. I've had very brief, just kind of like introducing myself and how you do it in sort of conversations with him and nothing more than that. If we could talk to him, that would be, that would be really <laughs> awesome. So there's a, a woman in DC, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, uh, but she's been living in a tent uh, like a camping tent. I think a, like maybe a block or so from the White House. Oh, the yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. 
Yeah, I used to spend some time with Catholic worker in DC, and uh, they were friends with her. And she's basically like this supposed to be this like she's do, like working out this prophetic witness against nuclear proliferation yeah. or something. Which I think is like I mean I don't want to pass judgments on her way of life or whatever. It seems like there could be more helpful. <laughs> But, you know, God also has wanted plenty of people to serve as a, a sign. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, maybe I'm committing sacrilege. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting, the kind of distinctly American mm. <laughs> expressions of this kind of sanctity. I'm not sure if this would go anywhere, but I was thinking, Kent, about, you know, during the Chris Arnotti episode, he was talking about the open-air drug market in, was it Portsmouth, Ohio? Mm-hmm. And how the young people there told him that they were glad to be there. This is what they really wanted to be doing. And just the kind of open embrace of that enemy. And that made me think about what you had said about um, people posting suicidal stuff on Facebook, like just really openly embracing brazenly uh, with no shame and getting likes. And um, if that seemed like the same sort of thing to you and like what's going on there, what, What's this turn to an open embrace of nihilism or enemy? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to sort of propose a unifying theory that'll like I because I'm I'm it's liable to just be an awful take. Um, Did it ring like have have a familiar ring to it though? The way he was talking about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I see I, all my peers are really unhappy. Um. They're they're either extremely successful in in a very conventional way, or they're really unhappy. Uh, and most of them, especially people that I I was close friends with, are really unhappy. Um, and and it seems like the the social media for my peer group, which is also kind of a subcultural group, I, I don't I, I don't mean to to make it out to be just a like an age group, it's also a subcultural group, mm -hmm. is is like largely a, a, a place to commiserate about mm. mental illness and, you know, take selfies that are adorned in kind of Comic Sans um, statements about suicide. And like, it, it, I can remember when it was charming and it's more or less the same phenomenon now and it stopped being charming a, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Thankfully for me, just because my life circumstances have changed and I can sort of see it for what it is. Um, which is, I, I think it's super, I, uh, I don't know, I think it's super unhealthy, but uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I remember, um, when I was closer to your age, Kent, a, a similar phenomenon, you know, when we were teenagers, it was AIM. And then Facebook came out when I was, I think a senior in high school and my college was kind of like among like the second wave to get on it. So it was there when I was a freshman and yeah, dark nihilistic posts were common. Um, not just suicidal, but generally self-destructive language and ideas um, to give a sense of... I don't want to say meaning, um, but like dark ideations kind of lent a sense of authenticity um oh, yeah. to people's beings and i think social media in general just kind of amplifies it at the right age i think zeb you might have just missed 
the uh, respectfully, you might have just missed the boat on that one by a few years. <laughs> um, yeah, I think but, it's changed. I I know what you're talking about, and I think that it's changed. It's has a different. It? It's a related, but it's a, it's a it's a distinct phenomenon. Which because I can remember like putting sad song lyrics in my aim bio whatever and i mean is right. that what kind of what you're talking about i mean i mean i'm, I'm, I'm parodying it a little bit but, yeah i mean that but I mean, that, sort that, of that performative angstiness performative is angstiness. different is different from just sort of a a multi-directional commiseration of about like um misery and is, is it more yeah when you say multi-directional do you mean like more like everyone is agreeing on how Everyone's doing it with each other all the time. Okay, so that okay, so that's a little different because, at least, and maybe this was also because more it was just a, a time period where it was less of a sh- social media was set up as less of a kind of group chat kind of thing, where someone would basically post and then people would respond. Where it, it was very much kind of you know, one person would be the uh, speaker or a piner or whatever, then everyone would react to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that like, I've, I've talked a lot. So I, I'm a friend of mine. I mean, he's not a friend. He's not, he's not a friend. There's a priest I know, um, who, um, is the chaplain at, um, both the Naval Academy and St. John's College in Annapolis. And he's talked about how quickly the culture changed that mm-hmm. like two years ago or so. I mean, what basically my college cohort. Which was, I mean, you know, my college cohort graduated in like 2015. It was not that long ago. Um, he was basically dealing with um, kind of Dawkins style new atheism, mm-hmm. uh, which was still basically vitalist in some way. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. it's still like Dawkins style atheism is about how like science is really interesting and we're going to go to Mars and like once we've freed ourselves from the shackles of irrationality, then we're like, and, and and over the course of like two years, maybe, I mean, it was a little more gradual than that, but he's talking about how like there isn't even, it wasn't even a generational shift. It was mm-hmm. a shift of like a couple of, um, it's a hundred percent, um, identity politics and just nihilism. Like mm. it's a hundred percent, um, like dogmatic adherence to social constructivism and also just a belief in ultimate meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. Um, that he just doesn't know how to deal with. Like he he so he knew how to argue with new atheists. Like right. He had those 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 kind of uh, those tools in his in his toolbox. But he's like, I don't know. Like, I don't. <laughs> and <laughs> I had to be like, yeah. Like everyone everyone got miserable really quickly. Like it, it and it's something that like when when I see and it's something that kind of gives me a, a tenuous. Because sometimes I describe myself or, or certain positions of mine as conservative, and old people who are older than me don't recognize those positions as conservative. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because they were kind of just the. I, I think that the 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 baseline has shifted. The Overton window, I guess, has shifted in a, in such a direction that like I there are things that I feel the need to cling on to as this kind of um, I don't know, like. To, to not kind of totally capitulate to the wave of 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 absolute negation that <laughs> um, maybe the younger end of my peer group has has like totally surrendered to, mm-hmm. um, which is like either to people who are in my peer group but don't 
ha- haven't like participated in the same cultural circles I have or don't know people younger than them or whatever seems totally unnecessary um, and and maybe reactionary. And these are like fairly normal people. I'm not talking about pe- the kind of like uh, folks who have surrendered to to this kind of negation or whatever. I'm talking about like like. I mean, I think that there's like we make fun of people who talk about social justice warriors, and I think that that's fine because that's a, a silly term and like most of that kind of jargon is silly and it doesn't actually correspond to any person in particular. But also, like, I do think that I like I do think campus culture is ridiculous, and people who aren't quite of my age don't quite understand it. Right. Uh, like they don't quite they like. They think that it's – and sometimes it is an overreaction. A lot of the responses to it are silly and reactionary. But, like, there, there is actually something awful happening to people about my age and a little bit younger. Hmm. And it has, it has a lot to do with left politics. And I, you can argue against it. Like, I, I know it from the inside. Like, it's happened to me. Like, I, I barely recovered. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, hate to, I hate to say this in a certain way, even if I kind of – feel it is true um but like it's easier to be more it's so much easier to be more visible now and i don't doubt that things as a result of that and other factors have changed um but i pretty much everyone i know their early 20s was like the lowest point for them with late teens being a close second um and I know that this just makes it worse, but, you know, talking to you, Ken, like, I tend to forget that you are several or more years younger than me because, like, you know, you're easily more mature and gathered than I am. Um, but, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I I spent, you know, the 20 minutes before we started recording just tweeting pictures of Eric Erickson at Eric Erickson for his latest show article so you might want to hold off on that all right fair enough um but no i mean i think there's also the fact that i i'm not questioning that something might have changed um but in that sort of time period of the most radical explorations of ideologies and that and personalities and that kind of thing like pretty much everyone i knew went through a couple of shifts during that time period and not everyone came out okay like there's definitely some people who got sucked into things of varying bad degrees or just lost in their own personal hells um it wasn't the social justice warrior thing when i was in college but there were other similar not wrong on the face of them but just incredibly stupid and petty that we thought was really real and this is what was this is what was going to change the world and define us and all of that and by the time we we're like 24 25 literally no one even if they sh- maybe still had similar ideas um people like I mean, like the priest said like a couple years ago it was just new atheists and he could deal with that and a couple years it's going to be something else again like this is not the final stage no it's not uh, and that's worrying. <laughs> uh. Like, so uh, let me kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fly some rhetorical, I'm going to use some rhetorical flourishes, but I, I do mean it sin- sincerely. The, the difference I think is right. Like amongst my peer group, if you're in college, you, you probably know people who are killing themselves. Mm-hmm. 
people are killing themselves uh, at a really exaggerated rate across college campuses in the U.S. right now. If you're not in college, you or someone you know is probably addicted to heroin. I mean, real historical upheavals do happen. I don't think that every generational change is just uh, one small problem to it. Like, I don't, I, I don't think that's that's the only way these things work. Yeah, I think that there are things that from one generation to another are no big deal. That you know, one one generation shocked by something that the previous that the, the younger generation likes, or one generation is worked up about something that they they forget about, and the next generation is worked up about something else. But real historical upheavals do do happen. It's not like those things don't happen. I mean, it's not mm. like there are no crises in human history. Like there are real crises no, in human history. No, that's certainly true. <laughs> um, and I think that the modern era is just a completely different. Th- sort of time and civilization than history. I don't think we can look back at history as a guide because of communication and technology in particular. Everything is just, it seems, is ratcheting up. It's always going up, you know. And you could find, yeah, you could find, well, you know, Socrates saying that, or Aristotle maybe it was, saying that books are going to ruin people's faculty of memory Mm -hmm. because they won't memorize stuff anymore. They'll just go to a book. But and that did happen. That's the still thing that happened in history, to be clear. Yeah. That was the yeah. that was the end of the oral epic. <laughs> sure. So that wasn't that wasn't even false. Right. But but now everything is preserved and like you said, if it just keeps progressing, it's progressing towards something or in some direction. It's not just shifting around in an aimless way or in a cyclical way. Um there's, I don't know if this is totally related, but it feels like it is to me, so I'll say it. There's a guy who I knew in college a little bit who was a rapper and continues to have, and he's like 40 years old now, continues to have a sort of a low-level but professional rap career. And so I follow him on Facebook mostly because he posts stuff that nobody else I know would post, including a lot of sort of diatribes from, uh, I don't know what, like rap pundits or whatever on YouTube. And one of the things that I've seen him post a number of times is people saying things like, yeah, back in the 90s, we had rap about selling drugs, but now we have rap about doing drugs and rap about being addicted to drugs. And like that's what's being, being celebrated now. And it's ruining, it's ruining the rappers and their rapping for one thing. Yeah. And it's also making them incompetent to manage their careers. And drug abuse was a problem among, well, entertainers generally in the past but now drug abuse and like pushing it to a limit and not just with um like partying and psychedelics and stuff but just totally self-ruining drugs is becoming the subject that's being propagated um in that world among the younger generation of rappers and i don't know how much that's really representative or if that's a lot of sort of old man um, yelling at the kids. I think but, it's both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah, think it's it both. certainly seems to fit the trend. And if that is coming into that culture now, which is um, sort of the dominant popular culture form, that's what a generation of kids is going to be raised on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, well, as you say, me so, you know, at least, and again, because from the perspective, you know, like all we can each talk about is really from the perspective of our, of our own sort of micro generations. Um, but like, you know, the, the major events as my generation, we're trying to define ourselves as adults. Um, 
junior year of high school was 9-11. Senior year was going into Iraq. Um, college was the fallout of that. Katrina. Um, and then the year after we graduated from college, when just the economy kind of tanked, and then also elected Obama. Um, like, I mean, for one, looking back how historic a moment um, it felt when Obama got elected, not just because he was the first black president, I, like the sense of hope, because pretty much like my you know time periods, like our entire time of political awareness had just been constant cynicism about our leaders and every time like we got too cynical like they would find another way to let us down mm -hmm. um like there, there was a reason that john stewart resonated so much with people my age not just because he was clever and funny but like i really liked al gore because i was a hippie kid and so i was really mad because i lived in florida during 2000 um but like basically we became politically aware while bush was screwing up um and then just found ways over and over and over to make it worse um just absolute bungling and incompetence um and i think that's one of the reasons why i've also been kind of high on the socialism dsa sanders thing like again it's one of the few things i've seen people from my time in college not be just completely cynical about and actually be a little idealistic and far-reaching about what could happen that's interesting because my sort of repose to that was going to be not repose necessarily because i don't disagree with you but my my follow-up on that was going to be that um like a, ref a reflect reflection on the kind of political consciousness that crystallized during the obama years mm. for my peers which if you think of, i mean like because there were there were so many deeply felt problems during the obama years but there wasn't right. the same kind of like obvious um i mean you could direct all of your loathing at the bush administration and that's what mm -hmm. half of this country did for for eight years but like so i mean the 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 deeply felt but um sort of scarcely observed uh more insidious evils in this country during the obama years were just that right like if if you were becoming politically conscious in the obama years you were talking about drone strikes or you were talking about mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it was it was things that were less I mean, that the kind of cynicism that I think that breathes is is in, is way more insidious. I don't I don't want to compare. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But but it's it's it is different. Like it's it, it's it's a, it's a cynicism as well. But it's a different sort of cynicism, I would think. Right? I, like that's right. That's really kind of this absolute distrust of institutions uh, in general, and an, an absolute um, it just a. I feel like it it, re, it reached deeper. The cynicism reached much deeper into the like the core of people, because it, it involved this kind of like uh, penetrating analysis of all of these sort of um, mm -hmm. you know mass incarceration is is just a, like a, it's a a less obvious 
but somehow right. more horrifying issue. <laughs> um, well, just disorienting. Yeah, and at least for for me, and I, you know, I think some people my age, like it was hard to admit that Obama wasn't the savior. Um, <laughs> I don't think he's been by far the worst president we've ever had. Um, probably pretty high up there overall, but that's not a super, at least in my book, a super high bar that's getting set. Um, but like, I mean, I never forgave him for how fast he caved on Guantanamo. Like that was a pretty crushing moment for him. Cause like I was filled with like a lot of hope and passion. I was really excited. I got elected and like, yes, I, I'm very sorry that he faced opposition from the opposition party. Like that sucks. Um, but like he basically gave up on that the moment it got tough um, and just never talked about it again. Yeah. I mean, things like, you know, the escalating drone strikes and the deportations and all of that, I feel like, you know, the options that have been left for those of us who were kind of that age to get inspired by hope and change are just full blown cynicism. Um, trying to stay blind or optimistic um or and again one of the things i liked about like the sanders thing is like demanding better even if yeah. it's unrealistic like the fact that even after that i like seeing people i mean people of all, of all ages I, I love you know especially some of the older folk um as they start to get you know more and more idealistic and radical but like between the the you know, embarrassment and depravity of the Bush years and then kind of the letdown of the Obama years are like, there's people who are still trying to like get optimistic and, you know, dreaming of a slightly unrealistic world. Like I, I like that. And it's, it's been comforting and exciting to me um, that people aren't just trying to, because so much of the sort of left-wing opposition of my youth was clinging on to what we have and circling the wagons, um, lest we, you know, cede any more ground than we have to. But it was basically always treated as a as a losing battle. Um, mm -hmm. So the the guys that go out on the offensive, um, which is why in part it's so funny to me online when like the sort of establishment Democrats get so angry about, oh, we are going to risk losing, you know whatever little gains um which are basically being lost anyway i don't really know what they think they're clinging on to um but like there's are there are some people who are willing to like go out and push for more and demand better um i appreciate that it strikes me as a in in some ways a distinctly gen x experience mm -hmm. <laughs> wait am i no i'm not gen x though sorry no you're not okay. you're no uh older millennials so distinctly all of this gets deleted uh that strikes me as a distinctly older millennial experience <laughs> presentation well guys it's 10 after 11 i, I need say, to... what else we got we should probably wrap wrap this up um well we don't really have any plans for uh next week next week is that that's holy week right yeah i think we'll probably yeah. take a break yeah We're, all yeah. right so no no episode next week y'all should be in church anyway repent and submit to someone I mean, we're not going to say who well you got to yeah. serve somebody <laughs> it's true 
and no more than one because then you'll hate one and love the other. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think we managed to hit on all the great teachers in this last couple of minutes, so I think that's a good place to wrap things up. <laughs> all right. Have a good night, guys. All right, all right guys. Take care. Have a good night. Shine through the rain and snow There's an oily brine Built water baptism Waiting below That's just a wave Slam against the topside sound Ever roll in motion, go and get you down. Don't let it shake your steady thread cutting hand. Keep stealing ribbons from the steel and giving hell to every how you can. Between the wheel to go on and a wish that the world would spiral into the sun. Turn your head toward the storm that's surely coming along. If the sun was always shining in our Lord, I was like, we'd be shaking like a leaf with every God given night. We'd break under the weight of any pressure that was ever applied. Calls. He's got an ever-loving bone to pick with one and all Don't let his condescension get you down Just have the strength to know you're wrong And when you're right, the strength to stand your ground
I think there's so little that I said in the last two hours that I want broadcast to the internet. <laughs>